Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, and today's interview is with Elia Kovna, host of the podcast A Day in the Half-Life and science writer. Did you know that the words garden and yard derive from the same Germanic root, something like gard? Maybe, maybe not, and probably not so surprising on the surface of things. However, have you considered this? Both garden and yard have taken up their current positions in English only because of peculiarity of word borrowings in this language. English likes to borrow the same root words multiple times. So... For yard, the older borrowing here by centuries, this means from the old Saxon, gard. And because of a usual sound change in Old English, gard becomes yard, and ultimately yard. But the word garden has a different history. Gard derives from the old French, gardine, or possibly gardin. And since it entered English during the 13th century, the old English sound changes no longer applied, and gardine remained more or less gardine, that is, garden. Now, looking at the words today, yard and garden, makes a person wonder what we need the two different words for, since they each denote very similar parts of the world, namely, an enclosed piece of nature near a house. Add to this question the question of why American and British speakers use the word so differently, and add to this question, this. How does yard relate to the measure yard, that is three feet? I'll say this much, Celtic is probably involved. And how come garden got an ending, en, but yard was left with none? I'm not going to even attempt answering questions like these today, because the episode is hardly about etymologies. Phew, right? But I do have a point in drawing out in excruciating detail the relations between yard and garden, as much as I have, and the point is this. We learn a lot about how the English word stock functions today when we retrace just where this word stock has come from. The same holds for science. We understand a quite bit more about the current state of knowledge in any field of science, about the technologies we use every day, and about the assumptions we make about the world, these sorts of science-related matters make far more sense the better we understand where these matters have come from. That is the purpose of the podcast, A Day in the Half-Life, and the host of the podcast, Aliyah Kovner, talks with established scientists and with scientists newer to their fields and always to scientists of diverse backgrounds, all in pursuit of this goal, 
to highlight how scientific fields evolve over time and to retrace the often unexpected paths that advancements can take. A Day in the Half-Life explores topics narratively through the stories and experiences of the scientists involved in a field. So if you'd like to hear about how dark energy was first discovered and what is right now being discovered about it, or if you'd like to hear how energy here on Earth is stored and how we'll likely be storing it tomorrow, well then, A Day in the Half-Life is your podcast. And Aaliyah, the host, is going to be someone you'll want to hear more of. So, let's begin today's episode. Aaliyah Kovner, A Day in the Half-Life. Aaliyah, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Thank you for having me, Daniel. Where I'd like to uh, begin things is certainly not at etymologies. We've left that far behind us. (laughs) Where I'd like to begin things is at science communication, of course. And I'd kind of like to kick it off with a real general sort of question. What does science science communication mean to you? To me, um, well, to me, it means sharing what scientists are doing with people who maybe are not scientists themselves and doing it in a way that they can appreciate and understand. You know, quite simply, I think at its core, that's what science communication is. Mm-hmm. And when would you say it's done particularly well? What would be some of the characteristics of I mean, let's take our current form now, uh, uh, multimedial. Let's uh, stay away from writing just for the moment, multimedial, and say, um, what would be some of the characteristics there that would be necessary for science communication to come off right? I think a big part of it is enthusiasm. I think that when the scientists or researchers being interviewed or highlighted can share their own personal enthusiasm for what they do, and that carries through to the reader or the viewer, the listener, that has a profound impact on whether or not people get interested. And I also think, you know, that things need to be presented in easy to understand language that isn't full of jargon, but at the same time, that doesn't feel like it's been oversimplified in a way that could seem condescending to a layperson. It's important to realize that we all have different backgrounds and that familiarity with certain terms doesn't mean, or a a lack of familiarity with certain terms doesn't mean that they're not interested in learning. So um, plain accessible language that is imaginative and full of enthusiasm. Yeah, that enthusiasm I see is uh, certainly coming through in your podcast and certainly being one of those key traits. I I think the other thing you point up there is easy to understand as opposed to oversimplified is also key. I think scientists who are capable, much like your guests, of showing, look, this is what we've come up with. And these are all the things that these are all the questions that follow from that. And these are the things that we don't know. That that move in itself makes it clear that we're not simplifying things here. We're dealing with real problems. Yes, exactly. Um, what would you say would be some of the... Sometimes it's helpful to define something negatively. Where would you say that uh, science communication doesn't come off so well? I'm not thinking of specific examples, but I'm saying choices by the communicator, moves by the scientist, uh, what would be some of those aspects? Well, I think there's a lot of discussion about that now that is very interesting that um, involving communications around climate change and people who work in science communication are starting to realize that the approach of 
basically talking about the doom and gloom of not acting now as a as a planet together on climate is going to have severe consequences. Well, of course that's true. And people close to the science are very eager to, to instill that to the public. The approach of sharing it in a doom and gloom type of way is very counterproductive, basically. And and there's more and more research showing that. It doesn't engage people. It doesn't make them feel like there's anything they can do. It, in fact, often just makes them feel apathetic. You know, Noel, it's so bad, there's nothing I can do. And or it's so bad, what could I do? And so I think that that is a really important thing to keep in mind, that we want to focus science communication when on a topic like that more about actions that can be taken and the innovations that could solve these problems. So I think that's a really good example of um, a challenge in the field that people are now trying to address. Um, And I also think that in general, the COVID-19 crisis has highlighted that it's important not to, um, to alienate audiences who may not have the same view as you. It's, it's, you know, a challenge to get people who are skeptical of the vaccine to, to trust it and to feel like it's a good idea and talking down to those people or implying that they're not educated or anything like that, any sort of negative communication that's never going to help you get your point across. That's never going to assist in public health efforts. So I would say overall positivity and action oriented communication is is the future and you know maybe we didn't have enough of that in the past that's really interesting so that would be also it, it, it puts me in mind of your episode on dark energy where you you, you spoke with Saul Perlmutter and uh what again this brings us back to that that sort of basic uh characteristic that you were talking about this enthusiasm his enthusiasm for the challenges in science it, it was it was drawing for me anyway. I'm speaking from my own perspective. And I'm sure there was plenty of other listeners who experienced the same way that it, it draws you in almost as if you're somewhat participatory. That would be the, so this opposite of the intimidation that you're talking about that can sometimes be done when the topic is climate change or whether or not you need a vaccine. Um, it, what really impressed me was how he gave us this view of the science mindset that, you know, the challenges facing us today, be it, you know, climate change or, or an epidemic are things that as a team, as a group, you know, if we're undeterred, we can actually solve. And that seemed to me to be the general takeaway from his entire message that you don't need to be a scientific expert to participate in this sort of a mindset. Yeah. Saul is amazing. He's an amazing interview. And if I could, if he wasn't so busy all the time, I would try and get him to co-host the podcast with me because he's just, he's amazing. And he he has such a great presence um, when speaking to anyone. And he really does have a wonderful message about what science can do. So it was a really, it was a real treat to have him on the podcast. And I just remember when he said when he uh, talked about that toward the end about the challenges and how we can meet them, I remember, you know, in my mind thinking, oh, "Yes, this is great material. You're you're amazing, Saul." <laughs> yeah, I mean, it 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 pushed me so far to see oh, this is one of the things that you know, good science communication and he and your podcast offer us that to uh, see that 
you know, science is one of those things that we can actually put besides beside other things in our lives that give meaning to it. You know, our social lives, you know, the way we seek meaning in maybe religion, his, his, his view of, you know, community, sci- the scientific community as a society, as people collaborating together was just so forceful that you saw, yeah, this is another one of those things that we can bring into our lives meaningfully. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And another thing that's really great um, about his message is that is emphasizing that it's the team. It's a team who do, who makes all of these great advances. And, you know, he is a Nobel laureate. And so there can kind of be an image of a person like that as being this standalone genius who um, kind of is a, is a force of nature and does it all himself. And while he is definitely a force of nature, these things take many, many people. Like science is, is super collaborative and it's all about working together, working across disciplines. And I think that that shattering that misconception of like the lone genius is also super important for science, for the perception of science to the public, because that it sort of makes you feel other than, right? I mean, here are these people who are who are somehow different, who are set apart, who are sort of on their own, like off in the ivory tower, as they say. But it's really not like that at all. It's very much based on community and social connections. Um, are often how scientists meet each other and then go on to collaborate and do great work. So it's very it's very human and it's very team driven. And I love that Saul is so happy to talk about that. And this also, when you you say that you know it's it's such a team effort. I mean, people who spend any time with scientists realize that it's <laughs> it's never done alone. I mean, you make that point so clearly. It reminds me also of uh, Mike Gerhardt and the energy storage um, episode that you have. And this is, again, one of those great moments in science communication where I think you reach out to more people. I mean, it's, the again, the opposite of this intimidation. He talks about his own imposter syndrome. He talks about how, I don't know if, you know, the people who have invested in me have invested in the right person. And, and, <laughs> right. and, then, and then we find out, though, that, you know, his message is science needs all kinds of people. You can do it as well. And that, to me, was like, oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah, I loved I loved speaking to him. I love how um, candid and down to earth he is, despite obviously being a very great scientist. And I, I loved that he shared that message. To get a little bit more back, though, to the um, general question of science communication, before we look more in more detail at, at, at your podcast, how it's set up and, and your aims there. I think it would also be interesting for people to hear now that we've sort of defined it somewhat. Um, what would be sort of the career path that would be expected or is perhaps most promising for somebody who was interested in getting into science communication? Oh, well, I think there, thankfully, I think there are a lot of ways to get into it. I don't think there's just one way. I think people can take many paths to it. Um, starting out with a journalism background is always really helpful because then, you know, you learn how to talk to people, you learn how to compose a story, and then you can maybe start to specialize in science and then, you know, go from there. But you could also start out as a specialist in science communication. I think there are more and more programs, um, college programs, internships, and, and things like that, where you can just kind of dive straight in to science communication and, you can sort of arrive at it any which way you want. I mean, I've had sort of a an interesting roundabout way into it myself. And 
I started writing the the first technical science technically science writing job that I had was medical science very specialized medical science writing and then I bounced to being um, a very generalist science reporter and you know with many strange things in between so I think that it really can be arrived at from multiple angles and I think one of the things that probably makes some people reluctant perhaps to consider it or find um, if they're also working in the area of writing already have, you know, a degree in, in composition studies or in English or whatever, they, they, they feel very severely that divide between the people of the subject knowledge expertise and then, then they themselves of communication expertise. What, what would be something that you might be able to say as uh, to that divide and how one might view it most constructively? Oh, sorry, just an aside here. Do you mean by subject matter expert, like the scientists themselves? Yes, exactly. Right. Sorry. Okay. That was a bit uh, abstract. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, I mean, I would just say that um, what's helpful for me to remember is that I I talk about, write about, um, and share a lot of different kinds of science. And I certainly, there's no way I could be familiar with all of it um, personally, of course. And so I think it's really, in fact, sometimes even a strength to not be an expert in something yourself, because you want to ultimately produce a piece of work that is for someone who's not an expert to be able to understand and appreciate. And so I kind of can use myself as a barometer of, oh, well, I'm interested in this and I want to learn about it. And someone who's going to be consuming this science communication content, they're interested too. So I'm going to I'm going to dive in. I'm going to talk to this person, you know, just human to human and get a sense of what this is about. And then I'm going to share that. So for me personally, I, I take my um, just sort of take my enthusiasm and use that to dive in. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind when it does get sort of intimidating, which it, you know, it does. Uh, speaking to quantum computing researchers, was intimidating because I know basically nothing about quantum physics, but I'm interested in quantum physics and I want to know more. And so, you know, that's how I approached it. And I think you can't really go wrong if you approach it like that. And sometimes I also will use people in my life, friends or family members who are interested in something, but don't know it themselves. And I'll ask them, you know, do you understand this? Is this too technical? Or how do you feel about this? What would you want to know about it? And also, another example of how not being an expert in something actually allows you to explore it much more successfully. I've heard also from people who work uh, as writing professionals together with scientists in another sort of science communication, uh, the science communication from expert to experts. And they, again, also repeat much of what you said. They they find it an asset that they're, um, of course, close to the science. It's not like they there'll be fields like quantum physics, as you said, and I share that with you where you just don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. But if you've, pre- if you've prepared somewhat and are up on the journals, the way they express things, then you're ready at least to help somebody else write their next research article, for example. But they do, um, I'm thinking, for instance, of a, a an interview that I just had a few weeks ago with Imperial College London and, and their writing center there. They, they do stress the fact that it's the communicator who steps from the outside, who is most likely to be able to help the scientists communicate what they have to say 
even to other experts. Yeah, I think that's a thing that is um, maybe not talked about enough is that often the audience for science communication is scientists themselves who want to learn about other fields. And even, you know, brilliant people with PhDs don't know the lingo for a different field. So you, you really do have to appreciate the fact that most people are going to be outsiders to it. And but that doesn't mean that they aren't like terribly interested in it and really willing to dive in and learn. But, you know, if you're not in that field yourself, you're you're going to have to step back and um, and think about how to communicate to someone who, who's outside of that field. The one thing I've I left out slightly, I mean, you are yourself also a science writer today is clearly about the podcast. The the podcast here, Scholarly Communication, has a special interest in writing because most scholarship does actually get written down and passed on <laughs> that way. Um, what, what would be, in your experience, some of the perhaps more important differences or more interesting affordances of the written form as opposed to, say, a podcast? Well, with writing, you can be... Um can be very concise and kind of short and fun and and snappy in a way that I think can be really effective for science communication um, that might not translate well into audio also because it maybe it's hard to know what to do with a, a one or two minute audio clip but a fun easy to read story that gives you a great explanation of the take-home message of a new scientific study, those are really fun to read. People people love that kind of content. And so I think there are definitely advantages in some cases of writing over multimedia, but I certainly do love multimedia like podcasts and videos because they just engage you know, multiple senses and they can be very um, evocative emotionally and inspirational and induce that feeling of awe that I think is very important when communicating about certain fields of science. One of the things that you aim to do and, and, and achieve quite well in the podcast is to establish the narrative behind things and bring in the people. And I can see where a podcast, where their voice is present there, um, allows that, yeah, quite readily. I wonder, though, in the written form, do you have then different pursuits? Do you try to, does, does narrative play the same role or do you, do you form a narrative with different structures? Uh, I mean, I definitely try to, and I think, you know, a lot of science writers do because they know that that is, that that is effective and that narrative and people driven stories are really what engages us, but it can be hard. Um, wherever possible, I try to kind of weave in a little bit of the story of how the research got done, because there's usually, you know, a very interesting, often multi-year research journey behind some of these discoveries. And to me, that in itself is very fascinating. I, I wrote a couple years ago about a, a project that took 10 years for these scientists to discover the genetic basis of a very rare intestinal disorder in children. And just the, the perseverance of that and the, the difficulties that they faced over that period, um, I think are really important because the fact that they finally pulled it together into a paper and published that paper is a, is is noteworthy, but that's just one really short moment in the actual whole story of the research. And so, in, in cases like that, I think it's important to talk about that backstory 
um, I think that sometimes is the most interesting part of it. And it's very good that those stories get told because I think that shows science and a light to the public, which, I mean, for instance, you know, this myth, as you've said, of the lone scientist uh, breaking down that myth is important, but also the dedication. I mean, I have yet to encounter a good scientist who, you know, really hasn't dedicated huge portions of his or her personal life to what it is that they're doing. And I'm always, again, as your key word there, awe, I'm in awe of that kind of work. Definitely. Um, let's move closer to the podcast uh, and the idea for it, where, where it took root, and maybe give us your experience as to how it was setting up. And uh, it's it's still quite young. I, yeah. I do believe it actually began this year. Um, but mm -hmm. if you could sort of situate it, give us the context for it. Sure. Well, I, I was very fortunate when I was um, interviewing for this position to be told that the lab, um, Berkeley Lab, was interested in starting a podcast or at least doing more audio work. And that was something that I had background in. And so it was really cool to know that even though I was initially being brought on as a science writer, that there was um, there was a, a real goal, a real desire for some audio content. But of course, it, it does take a long time to get these things off the ground. Um, but the idea for the podcast was, you know, we have a lot of brilliant people doing cool research. And at the very least, let's talk to some of these people, right? Like we've just got um, amazing stories ripe for the picking. And we know that there could be a great, great audio stories told about that. Um, but then it, I sort of wanted to brainstorm a way that we could create a format that was interesting, that was unique and that played to Berkeley Lab's strengths. And there are obviously a lot of science podcasts and to the point where, you know, no one's going to reinvent the wheel at this point. Like I didn't expect my science podcast to be a, an entirely new entity, but I wanted it to have some sort of shape that made it unique or that made it um, recognizable. And so Berkeley Lab's, some of the, the emphasis that we try and share is, is the team science part of, of how science works. Team science is a big thing in Berkeley Lab and we're very proud of it. Um, and so I knew that it wanted it to be conversational. And I also wanted to highlight how the lab has, puts a lot of energy and very like thoughtful attention on nurturing upcoming scientists, um, young postdocs and interns and, there is a big, there's a lot of energy put into um, helping people develop their careers while they're at the lab. So that's sort of how I got the idea of there being a more senior scientist in each conversation and a younger scientist. And that played really well with the idea of exploring basic science research and how that evolves, which I think is is one of the harder things to communicate, right? This fundamental research. I mean, even the name I don't love, basic science, makes it sound like it's um like it's simple or uninteresting, but it really just means that it's kind of tearing into the fundamentals of nature that we still don't entirely understand. And so I loved the idea that we could take someone who's been in the field for a while, who's like dug into those meaty problems, and then talk with a younger person who is using that knowledge now 
and going forward with it. And um, people at the lab were, were excited about the idea. It got, um, it got the support that it needed. And we just sort of um, tried to give it, a, give it a go this year, even with the, the difficulties of COVID-19. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off the format is interesting it really i i i i I like the idea that you have um i mean that as your aim has certainly worked i I can only say from a listener's perspective you know (laughs) having this idea that that you know basic problems have been pursued by maybe more senior researchers established researchers and then you know the people picking up the next line. I also like the idea, which 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 came out so clearly now uh, as you were talking, that Berkeley is interested in mentorship. That mentoring really matters, and and this is such a hot topic now in science. Um, a, a wonderful series has just been put out by Nature's um, Working Scientist on on mentoring by Julie Gould. I can only recommend it to listeners. And and, and your podcast is is highlighting that as well. How important mentorship is to science. Yes, definitely. Um, I'd like to maybe just uh, try to get us into the interviewer seat for a moment or two anyway. <laughs> um, and I'm sure this, this brings us back to uh, where, where we began um, our, our talk today of what it's like to be a science communicator, what it's like to be somebody who may not belong to the fields of the people who you're, you're, you're talking to. Could you maybe talk about some moments where... Uh, you really didn't know how to ask the next question or moments where the questions were just blossoming so fast. You you didn't know how to proceed. Um, Have there been any interesting moments uh, as you were conducting these interviews? Well, I'd say that there were, that I'm lucky in that a lot of, there've been a lot of moments of having so many questions in my mind that um, I just, that the the interview has taken a direction that I wasn't expecting and I've learned something new. And, you know, I, the, one of the guests will say something and then I'll think, Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. I need to, I need to learn more about that. And those sort of, that sort of organic flow that, that you get from these interviews is, is so fun as the interviewer. And, you know, I can only hope that my excitement translates for listeners. Um, that's my aim. But um, I, I think that there were a lot of moments like that um, in my interview with Saul, Saul Perlmutter, because I mean, how many of us, 
like don't have questions about the fundamental nature of the universe. And and here I was getting this amazing opportunity to speak with um, a Nobel laureate astrophysicist who co-discovered dark energy and, you know, just being able to sort of pick his brain about like, well, what is all of this? Um, was such a treat. I mean, it really was for me. It was it was really fun, and I, I hope that that um, in that interview uh, there were people listening who, who were feeling the same, who were feeling like, yeah, I have always wanted to know that, or I have always wanted to ask that. I think that those those organic moments that that I have with the scientists are um, are important, and it's good to have. It's nice to have unscripted conversations and just see where they go and see where, um, how the two subjects interact and how, um, how I, through my own kind of curiosity and, um, lack of expertise can, how we can all sort of navigate around things and, and have new ideas come up. That is one of uh, the episodes that also really stuck with me. I mean, this this whole project with Desi, I think it was, um, which yes. is now following up on um, many of Perlmutter's um, discoveries uh, con- concerning um, dark energy. I mean, it, <laughs> I mean, physics is one of those areas where you really meet the weirdest and creepiest ideas about how things probably are. <laughs> yeah. And um, it, it comes out in the... Um, in that conversational format, you know, from all sides, their interest in trying to formulate the scientists' interest in trying to formulate what it is that they care about and think matter on the one hand, and and you, you know, showing deep interest in hoping to understand what it is that they're next going to say. Right. Um, yeah. What, what, one of the other things that uh, struck me is the level of interdisciplinarity in the fields that you've covered so far, the necessity of people of, of people in perhaps early career to sometimes either go with an instinct and start specializing in something or just let chance come their way and bring them into the area where perhaps they're best suited for. Because again, back to the team, ex- the, the team effort idea of science, you know, it's so hard for anyone nowadays to really be able to get a handle on biology or physics, right? There's just so many elements involved and we need all different angles there. Yeah, I, I think that that is um, something that's really cool to hear from the different scientists that I've spoken to is sort of how they have found their niche within the field. And, it, you know, it, it's often just sort of a serendipitous event in their own life or um, an encounter with a colleague that has sparked something in them and led them to pursue a certain line of inquiry or to join a certain project. And, and that's how really amazing partnerships have formed and, and discoveries have been made. Um, a, a good example of that is um, Irfan Siddiqui, who is now a very uh, prominent quantum computing researcher, didn't set out to study that at all, but he sort of knew a person who knew a person who was doing this cool work and said, hey, do you want to come join? And he did. And then, you know, the rest is history. So I think that it's also nice for people who are interested in maybe pursuing science themselves to hear these stories and realize that you don't really need to have it all figured out, um, that your career and these opportunities will, will unfold as you go. And just if you pursue your passion and your interests, you'll almost certainly end up somewhere interesting. 
And I think that's, again, uh, one of those roles where science communication can step in and help because uh, by spreading this reporting on all of this knowledge and these discoveries and these possibilities is 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 going to reach people who perhaps haven't considered, I would think, something like that. That's something that comes up. Uh, Irfan uh, Siddiqui is a, is a great example. I agree as well with uh, his work in <laughs> quantum IT. Um, just the fact that he tells us at one point that you know, the fundamental quantum mechanics is on the one side, but there is also the technology on the other side. And the interplay between them is what will move us forward. Theory, practice, theory, practice. So, I mean, just that process alone is going to need so many different minds. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny, a lot of my the the scientists I've spoken to who work in a field that at least isn't, even if it's not physics entirely, it has aspects of physical sciences. Um, they often, it all, the conversation often kind of goes toward philosophy, which I love. <laughs> and, um, you know, just, just getting to hear that people in these very technical, very fact driven fields, like they, they still, there's, they still get to engage with the philosophical nature of it too. Like it isn't so rigid. There are multiple ways to think about it. There are multiple approaches and, and you can kind of get in really deep and look at it from different angles because that's what the experts themselves are doing. And also the history that shows up there, um, this history of thought behind a certain field, this, this brings to mind the energy storage episode, um, where we find out that, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is what I had understood, that so much energy is still being produced essentially by gravitational force, water being moved up and letting it flow back down. I mean, these are not mind-blowing technologies, but they, they are what are used. Yeah, yeah. I was I, I found that so interesting as well because sometimes the best technologies or sometimes the technologies that we're using now are incredibly, incredibly complex, like the quantum computers being built right now, the superconducting quantum computers, which are, are just so precise and, you know, require the most precision-based manufacturing, um, contrasting with, you know, exactly, pumped hydropower with pumping water up a hill and storing it. And um, sort of the the balance between complexity and simplicity in science is so fun to hear about because you sort of never know when it's going to be one versus the other. Sometimes it is the deceptively simple thing, and sometimes it's very, very complex, and sometimes it's the two combined. Yeah, and it's that evolution which which you pick up and following, tra tracing these things back as to why it is that energy storage works that way, as to why it is that quantum computing is really entirely new on the scene that shows us, you know, this this philosophical side as well, because we see how the, let's say, the research project has developed, pro progress has developed, and then we understand a little bit more as to what matters next, what matters now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, yeah, the it, as much as the past can inform these scientists, you know, their new a new challenge will arise that they'll have to fix that could be totally unexpected, or there could be there can be a discovery. And you could realize that there's a totally new application for something that you didn't realize. Berkeley Lab is famous for the invention of the cyclotron, which is a device that was the precursor to uh, particle accelerators, which now, you know, there's giant ones that are, have so much power and can do so much. But And it was invented to study 
you know, to study the elements and discover new elements and the fundamental properties of atoms. But, you know, it was discovered that you could use these particle accelerators, you could use these high energy particles for imaging, for medical diagnostics. So this technology took this really interesting branch and became nuclear medicine. So those those sort of events are are amazing to to learn about and and to share. And I'm sure, you know, for the people involved, for the scientists themselves, the the stories are just incredible. And it gives us, um, as as we're both trying to put our finger on, I think right now, it gives us a view as to how science actually works. Um, that idea that it's sort of cool, rational, and proceeds, you know, step by step is 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 just not. The reality. I mean, the unexpected twists which come out in your narratives make it so clear that, you know, we have to be ready for these things. Creativity is necessary. Yeah. And also um, a thing that comes up a lot <laughs> that I actually really love to emphasize, um, not in a mean way, but in actually a very positive way, is how much failure there is. I think that that is something that is so real that people don't talk about enough is like when your experiments just don't work at all. And you have to redo it or, or they don't work at all. So you have to come back to the drawing board and think about why. Like that's a huge part of science as well. Um, so unexpected moments and um, and setbacks, I think, are both things that um, that I love to talk about because I, I don't feel like they get enough airtime. No, they don't. And, and, and they also don't find their way necessarily into the publishing arm of science in research articles in particular. I mean, the publication bias that people talk about where the results need to be positive. I mean, the basis of science is to falsify a hypothesis. And, and what you're talking about is exactly what more people need to be able to accept that, you know, the failure over a number of years is always teaching us something. Yeah. Yes. And I, the scientists almost always have a great attitude about that because they they know that to be true. They know that it's from disproving their hypothesis or from um, from unexpected results that you know that, that real progress is made. And I mean that's where you can clearly see their enthusiasm on their side. Um, I mean, as you say, they, they know themselves that to be true. I mean, there's very few scientists who commit to this sort of a career just because they want a certain badge on their shoulder or anything like that. And, and, and it brings to light, you know, some of the, maybe the apparatus in publishing at universities, which aren't necessarily functioning to the best advantage of science, because the pressures, clearly the career pressures or the publishing pressures people are put under, make them perhaps, you know, act in ways that they don't really want to. Yeah, I think it it is also a great, opportunity um, to have different forms of science communication that are becoming more and more popular now that aren't just about uh, discussing the results of a study or a couple of studies. And obviously, there's still a lot of science communication that is based on that, and it can be really, really important, right? I mean, if you look at the studies that are um, you know, looking into the duration of protection from a COVID vaccine, that study, those results, those are, that's really important to share. But when you get into things like documentaries and podcasts, you can you can step away from looking at just publications, at just things that have made it through the peer review process. And exactly, like look at the science as a whole, look at what's happened or what is happening happening in a more integrative way. 
that for sure tells a much richer story. And is also interesting for experts and other closely related experts inside of a field. If the story was on some area of cell biology, the general biologist and the chemists and so on, you know, will will also profit from this sort of uh, sort of reporting. I'm sure. Yeah. I'd like to come back though to uh, the podcast and, and and let's say it's 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 structure because it's um, affiliation to Berkeley Lab. It's it's growing out of Berkeley Lab is for me such a phenomenal idea. I mean, I know that many labs will have their blog, they'll have their digital presence, and so on, but. Um, it's, it's an idea that I would hope would, as a kind of model, catch on because I feel that there's some great science going on that needs to get out, as I was just saying, not just to the public, clearly to the public, also to the region, you know, locally, but um, also w- more widely to the, to the neighboring fields and maybe even just broadly to uh, scholars in general. And th- that's a function that I think a podcast of your sort can can certainly serve, ideally. Yeah, and that was definitely a big part of the intention. Um, I mean, I'm lucky that that my group is very into coming up with creative ways to share science and pushing ourselves and expanding um, to share with multiple audiences. And and the realization, like you pointed out, that there are more than one. There isn't just the general public, right? I mean, we use that term um, as communicators, but there's really just a lot of different groups and people within the public and kind of sections of interest that you can appeal to. And I, I think it's important for the kind of big research that the lab does, which is for the most part um, publicly funded, to to try and share that as widely as possible because it's being done for the benefit of the public and it's it's being paid for by the public and so you know you want to you want to get that out there and you want to increase the awareness of what is happening besides what we were talking about before besides just from learning about it through um, publications through through journals and um, because not very many uh, non-scientists are, are picking up like the latest version of uh, nature materials and um, someone who's a biologist might not be looking at that ever. So um, I totally, I totally agree that multimedia is just sort of adds another approach and, and enriches the toolbox for how science communicators can share what's going on. Yeah. And, and, and also just the fact that there is a science communicator in the lab who is, you know, has his or her eye to how are we going to get out this out there? What would be things that we could do so, you know, the different publics, the different groups in the public, I agree very much the public does not exist, can <laughs> benefit from it, see it, understand it, care about it, use it perhaps, right? The biologist who isn't going to go into the material science uh, um, research article, uh, he or she may have great use for some of the um, things coming out. I mean, biomanufacturing is a great example. Your your episode on that shows that you know not all biology is biology. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it's um, it's been a really fun environment to to try and explore that. And it's different than anything I've done before to sort of be working on sharing the science from alongside the scientists and. I mean, it's it's great. It's 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 great having access to to all these people, and there are so many great people to talk to at Berkeley Lab who have 
um, amazing ideas and research to share. Um, but also, as we you, as you mentioned briefly in the in earlier, we do want to try and expand it. it. It's important that it's not like just about us talking about what we do, but you know, talking about sort of the the long term scientific goals that are shared across the country and even the world. I mean, because we are a national laboratory, we are kind of always lined up with that. It's always about um, pressing issues like energy storage and climate change and, you know, quantum computing. But so it these these fields involve way more than just us. We're, we're playing a part, but we want to talk about them more broadly. So I really hope that as the podcast grows, I can um, talk with people outside of the lab more often and perhaps have them talk to people who do work at the lab and just, and just sort of mix it up and grow our scope. And the international level of it, uh, the international level of all science uh, comes out very clearly in in your uh, podcast. It, it, people are pretty much from everywhere. I mean, I love the <laughs> right. story about Mike Gerhardt, who's working in Norway, was recruited there by a person who was from Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> yeah. I mean, impossible really in any other uh, area of life besides in, in, in science okay maybe business but let's I, I would say science probably has the upper hand there and 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 i do uh hope as as well that you know you you achieve your goal there of, of expanding beyond that but the point that you know even any any lab you know the, the lab at berkeley itself is sort of a cultural, linguistic, you know, international setting anyway, because that's just the way science works. And 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 that interview with Mike Gerhardt was very interesting because that came up. He says that, yeah, sure, when I go down to the supermarket, um, you know, my Norwegian's rusty. I don't know how to do this or that. I don't know why, where everyone's lining up or not lining up. <laughs> um, but when I'm back in the lab, you know, science is science. We're doing this. Yeah. Yeah, I and I, I love that too. That there's it, it's so international, and and you get people from all over the world, and that's one of the reasons why. Yeah, I, I love talking to the people at the lab because even even just amongst our own scientists or, or researchers, there are people from all over with so many diverse perspectives. And uh, just to hark back once one more time to this idea that you know you're. Uh... You being there, a scientific uh, science communicator in the lab, as, as as you said so nicely, alongside the scientists, I I do really think that there is um, potential for that. This, that this is something that you know many labs could profit from. You know, having that expert communicator in every lab or with every group out in the field. Um, what what do you think would be some of the things that that the research would gain by by having such an accompaniment? Well, I mean, I definitely think it's great to have someone who um, isn't immersed so that they can, it's hard when you're so close to something to to see what the other areas of interests interest are. You know, um, for example, I, I was looking into um, doing an episode on drought in the future. So I guess this is like a spoiler that might happen, right? <laughs> But um, I was starting to do some research of, of um, people who were studying the um, drought in the Western United States and, and who I could talk to. And I had I had a bunch of ideas of what could be interesting. But I wanted to actually just ask 
friends and family and uh, colleagues what they would want to learn about drought. And just from a few conversations, I I was given ideas that I hadn't even thought of. So even as the science communicator and not the scientist, I wasn't fully aware of what people wanted to know and what people thought are the big issues. And so that's, that's I think, a really great reason to have a communicator immersed in the science is they can sort of look at it with fresh eyes and say, oh, that's really cool, but but what does it mean for this? And you know, being able to meet that um, from the beginning to have addressed those questions that maybe um, the scientist doesn't realize are as interesting or as pressing as they truly are to someone who's not looking at it closely, I think that is is wonderful because it immediately can just go so much farther. The science communication can just go so much farther because you're you're answering questions that you know the public truly want to know know about. So that's one, I think, one uh, big advantage. And also, yeah, I will say that being immersed in the science by being alongside the scientists has been a really fun experience for me because, you know, I previously worked in my previous experience was sort of as the reporter or, you know, as the person covering it. And it's you get a chance to sort of build up a relationship and build up a familiarity with these people that really allow you to have like a friendly chat. And that's what I want the podcast episodes to feel like is I, I want it to feel like I um, came upon two scientists, like, you know, catching up uh, over a glass of wine and, and the three of us just had a conversation. Um, And that's hard to, to foster unless you, have you know are able have the privilege of of working with the scientists so i really try and and use that to give the podcast its fun informal tone i don't think any of us have ever been drinking wine when we've recorded it but um that's the that's the vibe that i i want well we'll be pay- paying attention for slurs in future yeah. but anyway <laughs> <laughs> no but I- um <laughs> right cuz like that's that that's it's uh the, the comfort and ease of a conversation of a conversation um, about something like this can be can be really hard to achieve, and and I really I try I try to aim for that as much as possible because I think that that um, I think that people speak more from the heart and they say things that um, wouldn't come out in a normal interview otherwise, like um, like Mike talking about imposter syndrome at the end. I think that um, that sort of thing doesn't. It's hard to inspire a conversation to go that direction when it's when it's formal and when you're a stranger and when it's too rigid. So I, I really do think you get you get gems like that out of people when you um when you keep that friendly atmosphere. Yeah, no, that's that's for sure. And and, and that's the wonderful part of it because then you you find people sharing things that other people really need to know. Because I mean, Mike is <laughs> never going to be alone with the way he feels. But I mean, if somebody says it, then other people think, "Oh, okay." There's other postdocs out there who feel like this. There's other, um, you know, people in another country who feel like this, and so on. I mean, that's what matters. I mean, that's part of the po- point of this podcast is uh, to get people thinking about how is it that scholarship gets published. Because I mean, you've been to university. That doesn't. That's the part that doesn't get talked about. <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. And um, I, th- I think it's really nice to be able to have um, 
a, a free conversation that is open where it's clear that I want to know about them as well, that I want to explore things other than just this, the questions that they might get asked for a, a press release to see that other side of things. And as I'm sure you've experienced as a podcaster, uh, oftentimes it's at the end of a conversation when um, when it kind of shifts and you you can explore these unexpected things and people will share insights that they wouldn't otherwise share just because there's been this comfortable rapport that has been developed over the previous conversation. And that to me is one of the most satisfying things about doing it is when um, as a group, we've sort of, there's been a meeting of the minds and we've all talked and, and been excited about it together. And then, you know, some really wonderful um, things are shared and insights come out in those, in those later moments. Yes, I've, I've I've experienced that as well, where, you know, you, you think the podcast is, the episode is coming to an end, and, and then the real interesting bits start coming, because, right? because as, you, as you say, I mean, it's, it's it, people have to sort of develop a level of comfort then with the others, and then they start to reveal, I mean, it's just totally natural and human. I mean, that's the way it is, isn't it? I mean, yeah. Right. And, you know, it's hard as a reporter on a deadline who, you know, just needs to get this story done because they have two more due by the end of the week. It can be hard to, you know, you might not have, you probably in some cases don't have the time to uh, establish that sort of um, rapport with someone interviewing. And I'm sure that um, many people would like to have that luxury. And so this podcast really gives me that luxury and I am able to, um, to, to dig deeper than I would be able to otherwise. So that's, I think, one of the big strengths of, of the format and of the form in general of podcasts. And also uh, one thing that I love about it the most, um, it's like you said, it's the very end and then things get really interesting. And then you as the interviewer are looking at the clock and you're feeling bad because you said it was only going to take so long, but now it's getting really good. And, you know, you just want to, you just want to keep it going. So um, that, that's always a great experience. Definitely. Always just let it roll. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Um, but what you're talking about, though, is it sort of unconventional formats. That's that's probably the category I would put it in and their advantages, their affordances. Um, the Just the fact that you're standing alongside, as you put it, these scientists is already in itself rather on the unconventional side. I mean, it's not often that, you know, expert communicators are in the labs together with their scientists. And I think that that that's just a wonderful idea. This this uh, I've said a few times, but one of the things that I really like about it is that, I mean, as a communicator, generally we find ourselves trying to put ourselves in different he people's heads. Yeah, I mean, this is this this normal reaction of a writer or or somebody who's in media to try to figure out audiences. And of course, yeah. I think that that's exactly what you know in a lab or with, you know, a team in the field is you know, the asset that we would bring then to them. Yeah, definitely. The, a fresh perspective. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, uh, Aaliyah, you've been uh, very generous with your time. I, I would like uh, to pose one last uh, question for you. And that, that is quite simply, um, I see this uh, venture as having many unique aspects to it. And I wonder what you would say to some other institutes out there in America, across the world, who was interested in perhaps developing um, science communication in their lab in, in similar ways, whether it be a podcast, more of a digital presence, or anything of the sort that we've been covering in the, in the talk so far. 
um, wait, sorry, um, just a timeout for a second. Um, the advice for, for them, is that what you said? Yeah, that's right. Sorry. Oh, no, <laughs> advice, I mean, as somebody who has that experience, um, what might you pass on to another lab who was interested in perhaps establishing a more, a broader science communication program? Um, what have you learned that has worked? What might be useful for somebody else who was just starting? Right. Um, that's a good question. I I think that one thing that I've learned is that um, it's when you're adding something like a podcast or maybe a video series or something like that, it's nice not to put um, not to necessarily put the same constraints on it that you do with with other things. Um, many institutions, it's it's very important to produce certain kinds of communications that go to specific audiences, maybe they go to your funders or to local government. And there's an aspect of it that is strategic. I mean, I work for the group that's called strategic communications in the lab, and that is a vital part of working for an institution or organization. But I think what's so great about multimedia formats is that they can be something that that supplements that, that doesn't have to fit in to that category. And I think they work best when they don't. I, I'm very fortunate in that the podcast doesn't need, doesn't need to accomplish anything. It doesn't, um, there's not a particular message to share. There's no agenda. It's just to look at things from a different perspective. As I've said, it's just to dive deeper and see the human side of science. And so for me, I think that's where the really, the really interesting things come out when you just let these mediums grow on their own and and exist purely for the exist purely to be interesting and to be engaging to people so that's the that's the advice i would <laughs> give and then i would also um yeah i would just say to to follow your own curiosity because you know if you're not sure what to do that will never steer you wrong very good. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> that is Aliyah Kovner, host of the podcast A Day in the Half-Life and science writer. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Aliyah. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you so much again. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye. And until next time here on Scholarly Communication. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.